recorded in our Nerd Haven studios. This is Pop Medieval, your host, Dr. Richard Scott Noakes and Nina McIntyre, discussing the intersection of medieval literature and pop culture on a semi-weekly basis. And now, back to your podcast. What, Nina? What, Doc? Well, we've had uh, some big news uh, in the medieval world. We had a couple of deaths in the last the last couple of weeks. They weren't unexpected, but they were still mm-hmm. uh, sad. So I thought I'd talk to you about them today. Yeah, a bit of a um, down-tempo episode this time. So in advance of us uh, getting into this, uh, one of the two, as we'll get into later, uh, was a pretty famous comedian. When we get there, uh, if... Suddenly, things start to get a little uh, cheerier. Uh, no disrespect was intended, but just, I think, thinking about his you know, work I just sort of puts me in a good mood, I guess. So, in a merry yeah. mood. In a silly mood. In an absurdist mood, one might say. <laughs> so, but let's start with the other one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so Christopher Tolkien uh, died. Son of J.R.R. Yes, son of J.R.R. Tolkien, who you would know as the author of Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and other things. Um, And his father was like a serious, hardcore scholar, right? He was, when he was alive, he was really the most uh, important medievalist in the world at the time, I would say. He wrote the most important thing, I I would argue, about Beowulf uh, that still has been written. I know there are some scholars out there who just dropped their monocles uh, hearing me say that. When he died... Like a lot of uh, authors, he had, of course, an executor of his state, but he also had a literary executor, just someone to handle his literary stuff. And one of his sons, I think he had three, well, one of his sons, Christopher, took on that role. And he was quite elderly. He was in his 90s. So it was not unexpected. Yes, this this is, again, like you said, this is not a shock, but uh, Christopher Tolkien had some notoriety in not just the medieval scholarship world, but also in the pop culture world as the executor of the Tolkien estate. Yeah, that's right. So um, I don't want to get deep into the legal weeds of all this, mostly because I don't remember it. We're not Yes, and I don't remember it all. And also, it's a little boring. It has to do with who owns the rights to this and that and what the publisher had the rights over and what the estate had the rights over. But basically, Christopher really did not want... And he really didn't want anything that wasn't uh, a book made about his father's work. He didn't like cartoons or, or, you know, movies or TV shows or anything like that to be made out of it. And so uh, he really resisted the creation of the, the Lord of the Rings films. As I recall at the time, he refused to see them. I think before his death, he did see the, the films that Peter Jackson uh, made. And then Jackson wanted to to make the hobbit and, and jackson had the rights to do that through the through the studio which got the rights from the publisher you know uh etc and he tolkien that is christopher tolkien really resisted the making hobbit movies and i remember it being i remember when the lord of the rings movies which are now i guess oh they're getting pretty old they're probably 20 years old now when it was clear that new line was making these with this director who the most notable thing he'd done uh, was B movie. Yeah. He did meet movies. the feebles. And what was yeah. the, what was the movie he made with oh God, don't mention uh, Jeffrey Combs <laughs> and, uh, and uh, Michael J. Fox. Oh, the, the Frighteners. Frighteners. Yeah. The Frighteners was oh, the, the biggest budget yeah. thing he'd done. Love the Frighteners. Yeah. And everyone was like, mm-hmm. what you're doing this, this, this is terrible. Mm-hmm. And I remember 
in nerd culture, there were these two kind of tracks going of skeptics that were uh, purists, which were, how dare you? Uh, others who were really hoping for a good big budget adaptation. You know, the only ones that had been around had been the Rankin-Bass style cartoons, you know, were more excited about this. And I held my, I really held my enthusiasm. I was kind of not happy about it. And we started getting screenshots and things. This is right at the very beginning of when, uh, you know, movies would reach out, uh, reach out to like the fan community. And it started looking like there was something respectful and good going on. And I turned around. And, and by the time Fellowship of the Ring came out, I would say that in certain parts of Tolkien fandom, there was full-on uh, rage that why did Christopher try to prevent this from happening? And now we can have The Hobbit, right? We want The Hobbit too. And so between the making, between the, the, the Return of the King and the first Hobbit movie, you know, Tolkien, Christopher Tolkien became this villain who was stopping us from getting this thing that everyone wanted. And I was way more sympathetic to him for other reasons, mostly reasons of scholarship. But he became this villain. And uh, then the Hobbit movies came out. And largely, I think, we sort of yes, suddenly he was vindicated and people thought <laughs> that was what we were afraid was going to happen all along. Uh, you know, that's what we were afraid was going to happen with the with the Lord of the Rings uh, film trilogy. So he's a right. pop culture. He, he's been in popular culture. He's been both the kind of stalwart hero who's been protecting his father's legacy, who's been uh, editing uh, books, which I'll talk about in a second. But also sometimes he's been cast as the villain. And I, I my view is that history has uh, uh, has vindicated him in that. But there will be others who disagree with me. Uh, now's not the time to really sort of get into to those arguments. But aside from that, you know, this is a guy who really established himself as as a scholarly editor. So starting with the Silmarillion and working forward, he edited all these things that his father had written, and he did a really good job at editing them. I think the last thing that he edited was published was probably, was it Baron and Luthien in 2017? Anyway, it, it's, I mean, he was, he was wow. really old. Yeah. So, I mean, the guy, yeah. the guy was, if he wasn't 90 when he was doing it, he was pretty close to 90. Uh, so he was just a really extraordinary, careful editor. He worked very slowly. He really has one scholarly article, which which I looked at uh, from like the early 60s, I think. It was decently received. I think at that time his father had not sort of achieved, I mean, his book was well known, but he he had achieved this kind of cultural iconic status. So there was no son of, you know, in the the couple of scholars I found at the time who had written about it. There was none of the son of J.R.R. Tolkien stuff. It was just about his piece. Uh, but he was a really... He carved his own Yeah, way. he did. And he was a really good, I think, a really good shepherd of his father's work. Um, he did a lot of uh, really strong editing work. And I think that when we look back on the editorial choices he made... I think he's going to largely be be praised for for what he did. He seemed to he really had, uh, interestingly enough, given he had a limited formal education on this. I mean, he had a BA from Oxford, so it wasn't like he rolled off the turnip truck and started writing. Mm -hmm. Given what he did, he had a, a really kind of deep well of knowledge that he, I guess, picked up 
being around his father and then through years and years and years of really working hard. The books that he did were not cash grabs. You can sometimes say that about author's children. We will not name any, uh, <laughs> but this was not. Maybe in a later Yes, podcast. this was not what he was doing. <laughs> he definitely was really trying to shepherd his father's work. And I thought he did a, a fine job. And so we're entering into a new era uh, for Tolkien's work. And we'll, we'll see what happens next, I guess. Yeah, we'll see what happens next for his legacy. We'll see what happens next for Tolkien's works. Um, I, I would believe that's a, a carefully guarded estate, though, from what I know. Again, I am not a lawyer. I am not one yet. But I, I would assume that that's a carefully guarded estate and intellectual property that has been well taken care of and well guarded. And the next su- successor to that intellectual property knows what's going to yeah, come Yeah, I next. think his wife, Bailey, I think is the person who's now in control of it. But uh, I, I, I can't recall. And she's also, I mean, she was younger than him, but she wasn't, you know, 40 years younger than him. She's also quite elderly. So mm-hmm. given the mortality of man, we're, we're going to see some changes one way or the other. At the very least, if his notes, if J.R. Tolkien's notes continue to be edited, they'll just be edited by different scholars who have different approaches and different takes on these sorts of things uh, than he did. And, you know, the truth is he was far less interested in making his publisher happy than in in controlling his father's legacy. So uh, we might be seeing more Funko Pop figures in the future uh, and less <laughs> and, and, and less sort of God Tolkien's translation of Beowulf or that kind of thing, which we got under Christopher. So let's segue into our next person who's recently passed away then on a lighter yeah. <laughs> note, but still quite sad. For so something completely different. De- now for something completely different. Let's talk about our dearly departed Terry Jones. Yeah, so I think I was telling you before before we started recording, there are, when you talk to medieval scholars of a certain age, I'm of that age, <laughs> uh, there are three, there are basically three things if you say what got you interested in medieval literature. I mean, there are occasionally someone who comes at it some other way, but the big three are, I played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. I read The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. And I really loved Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Uh, those really yeah. are the three and things. Pretty yes. much. Yeah. Or four, you picked up Beowulf in a bookstore and thought, oh, this looks interesting. Yeah. That was that was me. Well, you would you would but, you uh, are not a normal person, but I think we've already established I, that. Yeah. No one has, yeah, no one has ever described me as normal, so that <laughs> That would be the case. Yeah, so Terry Jones yeah. of the of the Monty Python comedy troupe passed away That's, a few days ago yep, at this point. Found one of the founding mm-hmm. members, yeah. And no that but that is true. I did see Monty Python and the Holy Grail. That was my first exposure to the Monty Python troupe because I I didn't see Flying Circus until I was in college, which is pretty late in life. This it hit pretty hard, but it surprised me in that uh, all the rest except for Graham Chapman who passed away in 89. Mm-hmm now 31 years mm-hmm. ago, are still alive. Yeah. And uh, that's just testament to how old and hardy these gentlemen yeah, are. Yeah, yeah. They all met at college. Half of them met at Oxford. University. Yes, university. Half of them met at yes. Oxford and half of them met at Cambridge, as I recall. Yeah. Terry Jones was one of the, those who went to Oxford, uh, where he studied English. Mm-hmm. A lot of them were interested in different sorts of medieval things and their their degrees and their mm-hmm. focuses were on those. So it's not surprising that when they finally 
went from just doing sketch comedy. I mean, there's a lot of, if you look at their sketch comedy, even Flying Circus, there's a lot of Vikings. There's a lot of like, like yes. there, there are a lot of medieval themes that just kind of come up because of their interests. But it's not surprising that when they finally got the money to do what they wanted, they said, well, we'll do King Arthur. Right. And it's not a passing interest. No. The Terry Jones specifically had a fascination with medieval literature and history. And as you shared with me, um, even wrote several academic works. On yeah, he wrote uh, one really well-known book uh, called Chaucer's Knight, The Portrait of a Medieval Mercenary. And we'll leave a link to the Goodreads page in the show notes that was really well received. I have probably read it more than any other academic book, but not because it was very influential on me, but because I bought it and what uh, to read while I was traveling and then I got stuck somewhere and it was the only thing I had to read. So I read it several times over uh, in that time. <laughs> and the my take on it is kind of the conventional wisdom about it. The conventional wisdom about it mm-hmm. Everyone almost always says the same thing. Really, really good. Really, really interesting. Totally wrong, but really, really good. Really, really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a sense, and I think the the disconnect is, I think when his book came out, there was a sense among people, maybe a little eye-rolling that, oh, this guy is going to try to, you know, he's obviously the reason that his book gets published is because he's a celebrity and so it's going to be this kind of silly dilettantish take on it, but it wasn't. Uh, most people disagreed with it, but he had arguments that were well supported and needed to be couldn't just be rejected outright. They needed to be kind of talked about to be rejected. And and his view, the the sort of the general thesis of his book Chaucer's Knight is that uh, the conventional view that that the knight in the Canterbury Tales. Uh, K-N-I-G-H-T, that kind of knight, the Knigget. Uh, the Knight in, Canib- in, in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales is a an idealized figure of a knight. He argued that no, the audience would have read him, ironically, we're supposed to see him as kind of just a mercenary, violent man, and that he is not supposed to be considered uh, good. Uh, he's more of a villain. And I think the... Most people, most scholars' response to that is to say, well, if you had just said, I want to read it that way, we'd have been, okay, I think that's a legitimate way to read it. But uh, most scholars, and I would be in this camp, would say, no, it seems pretty clear from the original context that it's not intended to be read ironically, that he really is depicting him as this kind of noble uh, figure, and that the real commentary on it comes with the Miller's Tale, who kind of responds to the Knight's Tale, without getting into to all the details of the Canterbury Tales. Um, but all that being said, like I sound like I'm kind of arguing against this book, and, and I am. It's a book worth arguing against. I mean, these two guys mm-hmm. are two guys who they didn't have PhDs, they didn't have masters. I, I actually Terry Jones had this kind of weird. I, I don't really understand it. This kind of uh, weird pseudo master's degree thing that Oxford offers. I was looking into it wondering what it was. And when I was done, I still was unclear on exactly what it was. So he did have some uh, education beyond the But undergrad. it's a legitimate degree. Yeah. He, he went to yes. university. He studied for this. It was awarded yes, to him. Yes, okay. for sure. It's not like a University of Phoenix no, no. degree where, okay. Well, now we're not going to get sponsorship for the University of Phoenix. <laughs> how, how dare you? Oh, darn, man. Wendy's and University oh, of Phoenix. Man, you're I'm just, just burning through our potential sponsors. Set them up and knock right. them down. 
I'm yeah. sorry. And so he, um, you know, he really produced a really great scholarly book that you can't just toss away. You have to say, you have to think about it. And everyone seems to disagree with it, but say like, but really good. And not just really good because he's a celebrity. They read it because he was a celebrity and they said it was really good because it was really good. So he was a, he was a decent scholar. I, several of the Money Python guys have spent a lot of time popularizing his, history and literature and things, uh, you know, after in the later years, as far as I know, uh, he's the only one who really made any inroads. He would go to the International Medieval Congress uh, every year, which is where in, in Kalamazoo, Michigan, right, where three thousand of the, uh, the of the world's medievalists gather every year. Um, I met him there, and when I say I met him there, to be clear, it was very much a met, shook hand, said hello. That was it. Uh, we and I, <laughs> he and I, I had you didn't throw yourself right. At him. Yes, someone. Well, someone the other day. You know, he's been he's been in declining health for the past few years he suffered from some kind of dementia i think and then um also some kind yeah. of aphasia so he couldn't speak i guess yeah i had a someone yesterday ask me if i had like detected that in him and i said like well no it's been a few years and then also like <laughs> it would have been quite like you were on a first name yes, basis right. with him exchanging emails and right calls. i mean i i i barely i barely met him i don't even think i took a picture with him like i have no uh, I'm not a, I think this has come up before. I, I, I have no particular interest in celebrities qua celebrity. So, you know, when I meet I them, you're a star shrugger. Yes. Ah, there we go. I'm a star shrugger. There we go. That's a great term. I'm going to start using that. Thank you for the, thank you for the sound effect engineer, Mike. Uh, I don't know if that's going to make it It'd be audible in the, pod, in the podcast, but, uh, <laughs> great. Uh, I don't dislike celebrities. When I meet them, I really have trouble not seeing them like normal people. It's kind of weird to me what other people do. So, like, I that I, I suppose there are some people, although, to be honest, at, at the Medieval Congress, I, people wanted to meet him, but there wasn't, like, a receiving line uh, that I recall. When I met him, it was just in mm-hmm. the hall. You know, no one was acting weird or people treated him as they would any other scholar, I think. To my way of thinking, when I think about Terry Jones, like when I think about John Cleese or or uh, Michael Palin or Terry Gilliam, uh, the other Money Python guys, I think about them as, oh, those those guys who are in that great comedy troupe. But when I think of Terry Jones, I actually think of him as one of us. Like I th- I think of him as being yeah. part of our my my tribe of of medievalists, and so. I don't know if to anyone else that sounds like high praise, but to me, that feels like praise. So that's the way I, I want to praise him. Well, that's good. Yeah, this it, it sounds like his area of expertise makes sense. Like him, Terry Jones writing a book on anything medieval makes sense. It's not as surprising as, say, finding out that Vin Diesel wrote a book on Dungeons right. and Dragons, which <laughs> shocked the hell out of me when I found that out. When I mean, are we going to get Vin Diesel? Ooh, you know, when are we going to get Vin Diesel on the show? Let's get him on here. I, re- I really want to hear, I really want to hear him defend some of his uh, choices. He writes an academic work. We'll definitely have him on there. Sure. Why not? Well, yeah. So Terry, Terry Jones uh, was, uh, you know, we knew, we knew it was coming because we knew he was in bad health. Uh, so it wasn't a surprise. Mm-hmm. Sad to see one of our tribe go. Uh, and I will also say this about Terry Jones, like Chaucer's Night, I think he published in, 1980 so mm-hmm. this was pretty quick 
Uh, like he was huge in the sixties and seventies. So by the time I met him, which would have been two thousands, he had another quarter Mm -hmm. century. I, I couldn't tell you the year to be honest, but he had another quarter century of, of learning under his belt. It, I guess it would have been nice to sort of sit down and, and have a conversation with him uh, and kind of see how, he, if at all, his thoughts had evolved uh, on Chaucer since then. Yeah. Maybe they had. Maybe they had. Or maybe not. Maybe he doubled down. Or maybe he had better <laughs> arguments to show that I'm the idiot here yeah. and he's the genius. So one last mm-hmm. question before we get to our recommendation. So favorite Monty Python sketch or movie? Well, I have to say Holy Grail for movie, uh, of course. There's no other choice. Uh, Favorite Monty Python sketch. So I don't think it's a particularly funny sketch. I I didn't think it was particularly funny in and of itself. I believe it's the the fish slapping sketch. (laughs) The reason I find it so funny now is, as I recall, is it Michael Palin who gets smacked up there? Uh, where as it turned out, the fish was partially frozen and he literally like got a rib broken when the gigantic fish hits him at the end. And I like people suffering for their comedy. So he got a broken rib Mm -hmm. and uh, as the story goes, was laughing so hard he couldn't, uh, uh, he couldn't stop laughing and (laughs) couldn't stop hurting himself. So I love people who are willing to suffer for their art. So I'm going to say nowadays it would have to be the fish slapping sketch. Those are good answers. How about you? um, Okay, let's see. When I was a teenager, I loved Holy Grail, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to say Life of Brian. I think Life of Brian is at least there's always an opportunity where the Judean people's front (laughs) or some form of that joke comes up either via miscommunication or something. Those type of words or or, or some uh, iteration therein comes up in daily conversation. So yeah, I'm going to say Life of Brian is my favorite movie, favorite sketch, anything involving the Gumbies. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) So why, why, why the Gumbies particularly? Um, because they're just so ridiculous and easy to make fun of because I'm pretty sure I've met, I'm pretty sure I've met Gumbies before. They may not be English Gumbies, mm-hmm. but I've definitely met American Gumbies before. And they they live not too far from where we used to live in Alabama, to be honest. Oh, is that right? I didn't yeah. remember that. Okay. <laughs> I'll tell you I later. do have, I'm really excited to hear about this. I actually, oh, yeah. I, I think I need to add my least favorite. So sketches are great, but it's more this kind of like running. They create this catalog of absurdist quotes. And I do have a least yeah. favorite one. And my least favorite one is knee. Knee is my least yeah. favorite one. And my least favorite one is knee. Not because it wasn't hilarious the first time I saw it in the movie. Holy Grail. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, watch the Holy Grail. And when you see the knights who say knee, yes, but it's impossible to work into conversation in a sophisticated way. And there's a certain kind of nerd who, as soon as you mention Monty Python, they will, they go, go, and I just, uh, I've been, yeah, I've had knee shouted at me so many times. Yes. So many times. 
that I just can't take it anymore. I am like the old woman at whom they are shouting knee when Roger the Shrubber comes by. Uh, I feel like her. <laughs> yeah. There's too much, too much of that. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's so, you know, speaking of the unbelievable influence of them on kind of how we perceive the medieval popular medievalism in Magic the Gathering, there was a particular kind of card in the first, I think the first version of it, which one of those dueling card games, Magic the Gathering. I've never played this, and I'm a little bit upset that you're bringing this Hold up. Hold on. There's a card in there. I can't remember the actual official name of the card. Right now, there's some nerd out there who's shouting at me. Uh, if you're unhappy with the way that I'm misrepresenting this, please send your complaints to Eric Idle at... <laughs> uh, he'll probably want to hear them. Where there's this card where it's like a, some kind of like wizard or necromancer or something. But it was never called by its name. It was always called a Tim name because it looked vaguely <laughs> yeah. like John Cleese's character, Tim the Enchanter. Oh, it's right. It was an enchanter. Uh, Tim the Enchanter in Holy Grail. And the, and the idea uh, that go. it was so ubiquitous that teenage boys would just all automatically call this card a Tim and you would know what they were talking about just shows the, the influence that Money Python has had on popular medievalism. That is yeah, interesting. So there you go. An interesting thing. The Very last good. interesting thing I'll ever say about Magic the Gathering, I'm pretty confident. That is true. Okay. Yeah, you've redeemed Thank yourself. You. you brought up Magic the Gan Gathering, and I was like, no, why'd you do this? And then you ended on a high note. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. Let's talk recommendations. Right. What do you got for me? All right. I'll start. Okay. So I've mentioned Lindsay Ellis before on this podcast, and she is my favorite YouTuber, um, video essayist, and I will no doubt mention her many more times on this podcast. Last year, she did an entire Hobbit video essay series, and she did bring up Christopher Tolkien and the whole legal issues surrounding the rights to the Hobbit and before then the Lord of the Rings. And uh, her video essay series, which in our show notes, I link to the first video mm -hmm. essay that she did essay series is Hugo nice. nominated. Sorry, my English. I forgot to English there for a second. Is absolutely fascinating. She breaks down all of the problems with the, the the movie making experience, the acting issues, the the toll it took on the New Zealand economy and uh, on the actors themselves, particularly the actors that played the hobbits. And she does interviews with a couple of the actors that played the hobbits. And uh, absolutely fascinating. She did a fantastic job. Definitely worth the nomination. So please check that out. Second recommendation is just, you know, to pick up everyone's moods. You might not know this, but uh, Terry Jones did not play a lot of really memorable characters from Monty Python. He did play several of the, they were the uh, rat bag ladies. Mm -hmm. I think they were called the pepper pots ladies from the flying circus but his most memorable role of course was from the meaning of life and that was mr creosote and if you know who i'm talking about then you know what i'm about to recommend if you don't know what i'm talking about well then you definitely need to click on this link please make sure you are not eating or consuming anything or about <laughs> to consume something or haven't consumed something in the last i don't know half an hour but I'm sharing the clip of Terry Jones as Mr. Creosote from The Meaning of Life. Yes. Uh, may you rest I, in peace. And I sir. will say throughout my life since that has happened, whenever someone has tried to give me something and I've said, I don't want any more, the response as frequently as not has been, it's wafer thin. So 
<laughs> In which case, then I don't take it because now I'm disgusted. But, you know. Yes. I, I won't, I'll say no more about that. <laughs> don't ruin it. And then my final recommendation, of course, or, well, not of course, but um, uh, Graham Chapman, who was also part of the Monty Python troupe, passed away in 1989. He had a fantastic memorial service hosted by the other members of the troupe. It was kind of sad, but uh, it was also very funny and uh, very silly. And I posted a YouTube clip of that where the other members, John Cleese, uh, Eric Idle, Michael Palin, and I believe Terry Jones did make a statement there. I, I know the camera cut to him on one or two occasions, but uh, it all ends with them singing Always Look on the Bright Side of Life, which is very sweet, and it did bring a little bit of a tear to my eye. Cracked open my cold, hard, dead heart. <laughs> but <laughs> very, very sweet, and I, I certainly hope that if there's a memorial service for Mr. Jones that it's just as sweet and memorable as this. So those are my three, three great recommendations. recommendations. So I got three for you, uh, but my first one's pretty obvious. Okay. I'm going to recommend Terry Jones's Chaucer's Night because even though I yes. spent a lot of time uh, today talking about why I disagree with it, it is really good. And so we'll have a link to it. So uh, yeah, I really do recommend it. Another th one that I want to recommend is the uh, Tor, the publishing company, posted something mm -hmm. on uh, entitled Celebrating Christopher Tolkien's Cartographic Legacy. And one of the things that people know about Tolkien sometimes, Christopher, is that he's the person who drew the maps. And so the maps that we're accustomed to from uh, The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, he drew those. Yeah, oh. he's the one who created them. I didn't know Yeah, that. and the article gets into how those maps that he drew didn't just create maps for the books. But those maps really set out this idea of, number one, that fantasy books should have maps. Uh, and number two, what a map should look like. And so, so many fantasy books have come since then have entered into this tradition of including a map without really understanding that that tradition kind of starts with Christopher Tolkien. When we go back pre-Tolkien... Uh, you don't mm -hmm. see a lot of maps uh, in these. I mean, uh, obviously some do have them, but, you know, when you read like the Fairy Queen or something, there's no maps in it. Uh, or if there are maps that I had no idea about, I'm shocked to know they existed. So, yeah. yeah. So celebrating Christopher Tolkien's cartographic legacy. We'll have a link to that in on the show notes page. But if you go to uh, tour.com, they've got a blog there and you can find it there from mid mid to late January. I would be where that would be. And then finally, uh, I'm going to plug a book uh, just because it's sitting around uh, collecting virtual dust. Nina, let me take you back in time to the dawn, okay. the dawn of Witam Publishing. 2011, hmm. we decided, well, before that time, wow. 2000, really late 2010, we decided that we were going to start this medieval publishing company. But it was so early on that we learned pretty quickly that a lot of medieval scholars had never used a digital or electronic book before an ebook. They had no idea how it worked. They had no idea how you would get it. And so we wanted to publish a free book on amazon.com. And so mm -hmm. I had an idea for an article that someone had 
someone had wanted me to submit it to their journal and I was going to do that, been requested. And then I ended up, I think I never submitted anything to their journal, to be honest, because I, I was like, no, we need something. And I happen to have this sitting in the hopper. So it's article length and we wanted to publish it for free and Amazon wouldn't really let us at that time. So it's 99 cents uh, and it's mm -hmm. old English and Samwise Gamgee's genealogy, Eden and the unfallen Hobbit. And it yes. is article length. It is, if you look at it, you can see, I think at the very beginning, there is a little introduction to it, which is about, you know, what we're doing. And uh, there's a line that I remember from it where I said something about how it will probably seem quaint in the near future to have to explain <laughs> what an ebook is. And I would say that that line has been vindicated. All, all my students know what ebooks are. My students read them, et cetera. Uh, so uh, it will cost you 99 cents uh, there. So uh, go ahead and buy it. And if you are offended paying 99 cents for an article length thing, then next time you see me, show me you bought it and I'll give you a dollar. And then you'll make a profit of one cent. Go. So there you go. <laughs> uh, but I've, I've done other things on Tolkien. Uh, but since that one is the one that kind of kicked off Witam Publishing was our sample book, I really wanted to take this opportunity to plug that one. And that's my third recommendation. Buy this article. Yes, buy it. And support small businesses, which you should do. Yes. And if we ever become, if you're listening to this in the future, when we are a huge international business that we've we've now acquired Penguin Group, they're a small <laughs> subsidiary of what we do. Also support big businesses in that case by buying the book. So. Yeah. Yes. Support your corporate overlords. <laughs> peons. Exactly. That's that's how we go out, you yeah. see. Okay, so I'm glad to say that we didn't have a third person to talk about today. That's, yeah. yeah. At least not no, now. Not, well, that was grim. <laughs> <laughs> I put that out in the universe. All right, no. And in, in all due respect, yeah, we are very saddened by the loss of Christopher Token and Terry Jones. We do respect their work and contributions to medieval scholarship. Yeah, so rest in peace to two great Oxfordians who uh, who made an unbelievable impact uh, on the medieval world and on the medievalist world. Should we West through Hall to them today? Uh, let's West through Hall. You take one, I'll take the other. All right, West through Hall, Terry Jones. West through Hall, Christopher Tolkien. Pop Medieval was recorded in our Nerd Given Studios. Your hosts are Dr. Richard Scott Noakes and Nina McNamara. Our audio engineer is Engineer Mike. Our music is courtesy of Dr. John Jinry. For more information, visit our website at profawesome.com slash popmedieval. That's P-R-O-F-A-W-E-S-O-M-E dot com slash popmedieval. Thank you for listening.